0: From iHeartMedia, this is Missing in Alaska, the story of two congressmen who vanished in 1972, and my quest to figure out what happened to them. I'm your host, John Walczak. On a hot September day last year, I flew from New Orleans to Phoenix, where I met up with our supervising producer, Paul Deccant. Paul, who flew in from Atlanta, got there before me. When I landed, he scooped me up in a rental car. We immediately drove toward our first interview with Jerry Paisley's daughter. To protect her privacy, let's call her Amy. My phone buzzed. It was Amy. Her son had just injured himself, she said. She was at an urgent care. Could we reschedule? Yeah, of course. I was disappointed, but the unexpected free time was nice. Paul and I went to dinner at a Mexican place and plotted out the coming days. The next morning, we met up with Tom Davis, the Arizona Department of Public Safety investigator who helped interview Jerry Paisley in 1994. In 1974, while working undercover, Davis had also secretly observed Paisley's wedding to Peggy Begich. One of the key questions I had for Davis, for everyone really, was whether or not Paisley told the truth. Truth. As a society, who do we choose to believe? Who do we instantly write off? Should we believe the politician? Discard the inmate? Why? What about Jerry Paisley specifically? I asked Tom Davis, Would you be able to tell if he was lying? What were you looking for in terms of Markers of deception. For each and every story, uh, consistency, number one. And, Davis said, Paisley's story remained consistent. More importantly, everything Paisley said that could be verified, Davis, in fact, verified, including specific details about unsolved murders. I said, tell me
1: something I can check out. And he says, well, you remember... uh, Uh, a a supposed suicide in the Sahara.
0: The Sahara was
1: a Tucson motel. He says, well, during that period of time in my life, me and Louis Marconi were running dope.
0: Marconi, Paisley's friend, was an ex-cop. And I said, okay. I I said, what kind of dope? And
1: he says, cocaine. He said, we dabbled dabbled in marijuana, but moved over to cocaine because there was more money involved. So he goes and tells me that they're doing cocaine, and this individual that they had uh, entrusted the cocaine to, or gone, he had gone out and picked up the cocaine, was back at the Sahara, tried to rip him off. So uh, the opening of the story was that was supposed to be a suicide. But he says, if you check with TPD in the coroner's office, he was shot twice. And uh, I said, okay. I said, now, here's the flip side of that. Did you shoot him? Yes, I shot him twice in the mouth. And um, Louie and I fought with him in the room. Um, we got him on the bed. I straddled him and shot him twice in the mouth.
0: Because of this confession, Paisley was convicted, again, in 1996, of murder. In court, he was cocky and sarcastic. He thanked the jury for stopping by and called himself quote, an honest liar. Obviously, Paisley is not the most trustworthy person. Obviously, he lied, often. But he also told the truth, at least part of the time. In fact, telling the truth is what earned him a second murder conviction. So, if Paisley lied about Peggy Begich meeting with Joe Bonanno, if he lied about Bonanno Lieutenant Joe Tarola giving him a locked briefcase to carry to Alaska, if he lied about Danny Zivinich telling him the briefcase contained high-tech explosives and that the missing congressman had been assassinated, why? Why would he lie? What did he have to gain? The most obvious answer, typically, would be that he wanted some kind of leniency, time taken off his sentence, something like that. But he was already serving a long sentence for murder. He had no chance of getting out. And not only did he not receive leniency, but because he spoke, he was also convicted of a second murder, which earned him an even longer sentence. What then about money? Paisley made no money from this. Fame? Paisley made no concerted effort to talk to the media. What then about Peggy Begich? Did Paisley just hate her? Did he want to get revenge? Again, there's no evidence of this. Paisley and Peggy were long divorced, and in the interview, Paisley was ambiguous about Peggy's role in the alleged plot. He questioned whether or not she even understood what she had gotten herself into. What about notoriety, or some kind of legacy? It's true that Paisley wanted to be remembered for his mob ties. It was, undoubtedly, a better look than his prison affiliation with the Aryan Brotherhood. But what notoriety did he gain? So, Paisley got no time taken off his sentence. He was convicted of a second murder. He made no money from his claims. He got no media. He didn't seem to have some boiling hatred of Peggy Begich. And he gained no notoriety. Until this show. And for that, I'm truly sorry. I don't cherish the idea of giving Paisley what he wanted at all. But I don't really care what he wanted. I care about the truth. And to that end, all three of the investigators who interviewed Paisley in 1994 think there's at least a strong possibility that he did tell the truth. Furthermore, Paisley later offered to take a polygraph or lie detector test. It is, of course, possible that Paisley just lied. Maybe there's no reason why. Maybe he just did. Beyond scrutinizing his possible motivations, I wanted to see which parts of his story I could definitively prove. It was tough. But during my research, I found evidence to corroborate much of what Paisley said, the parts that could be corroborated. But maybe he was just a good liar, mixing in truths and falsehoods. That's certainly possible. However, what I can prove, mob ties, the marriage, the business dealings, has left me with an uneasy feeling and a hunger to find the truth. Late in the evening on the day I interviewed Tom Davis, I sat down in my hotel room in Phoenix and kept digging through databases, trying to track down sources. One of the key players I was looking for was Gene Fowler. Fowler and his brother Larry were two of the six people Paisley named as having played a part in, or as having knowledge of, the alleged bomb plot. Three of the six were dead, Joe Bonanno, Joe Iotarola, and Larry Fowler. Two refused to talk with me, Peggy Begich and Danny Zivinich. So that left one person, Gene Fowler, I had looked for Gene for a long time, without success. I can't tell you how many dead-end numbers in emails I tried, again and again. Maybe this Gene Fowler is the right one. Maybe this number will work. Your call cannot be completed as dialed. Please check the number and dial again. So that night, I shot off some emails, then fell asleep around 2 or 3 a.m., September 17th, 2019. I awoke to a surprise email. I found Gene Fowler. But it wasn't Gene who emailed me back. It was his son, Steve. Steve was cautious, but he agreed to meet with us later that day at his house near Tucson. Excited, I texted Paul, our producer, and we agreed to meet downstairs for breakfast around 8 a.m. We had a busy day planned. We were supposed to interview Amy, Paisley's daughter, and... (laughs) Damn it. Amy canceled on us again. She apologized, saying her family wasn't comfortable with her doing the interview. I was disappointed, but I told her that I understood, and that if she changed her mind, to call me. I walked to the hotel breakfast area, spotted Paul, and said hello. Thinking of Gene Fowler and our just-canceled interview with Amy, I told him I had some important news. I got an omelet, set it down on our table, but before I could sit down, my phone buzzed again. and again. And again, today is September seventeenth, two thousand nineteen. Uh, Paul, one of our producers, and I are at a hotel in Phoenix, and we just went in to have breakfast. Uh, <laughs> but wow, it's been a crazy few hours. Um, I was literally texting with uh, Jerry Paisley's daughter, who I was supposed to interview on Sunday, and she backed out. Um, because she said her son was hurt. And then I was supposed to interview today at 10 a.m. It's almost 8 in Arizona where we are. And I was literally texting with her and setting food down on a table um, when I got a text from Bob Martinson. Bob Martinson. Remember that name. He's going to be very important to this story later on. He also told me something I hadn't heard which is very kind of overwhelming and upsetting to hear at this very moment, which is that Cokie Roberts just died. Um, Also last night, uh, I uh, finally figured out where uh, Gene Fowler lives. Uh, Fowler is the man who Jerry Paisley alleged it um, was at the airport in 1972 when Paisley says he carried a package uh, for the bananos to Alaska. So I have all this swirling. <laughs> I just walked out on Paul. He's sitting there eating, and my f- my food's getting cold. Um, really a- kind of upset to hear that about Cokie. Her uh, uh, family seems to be a very nice family. And, you know, they, they lost Tommy a few years ago and Lindy, too, so and and to to hear that in the middle of all of this, I mean while I'm texting with like, multiple people related to this story is it's just weird, so I just sitting on a chair outside in a courtyard in a hotel in Phoenix but um I haven't yet had time to look too much to see what happened, but I believe Koki died from breast cancer, which I didn't know she had and And I would like to express my condolences to her family. Okay. It was overwhelming all at once. Cokie, Bob, Paisley's daughter, Jean Fowler. I sat outside for a while and just stared at the sky. Cokie was the last surviving child of Hale and Lindy Boggs. I had spoken briefly to her brother, Tommy, in 2014. He agreed to do an interview, but several days later, before we could speak, he died of a heart attack. Cokie and Tommy's sister, Barbara, the former mayor of Princeton, New Jersey, was also dead. She died of cancer in 1990. And now, cancer had taken Cokie too. Cokie's death hit me hard. Only 10 days earlier, the day before my birthday, my mom had gotten confirmation that she, too, had breast cancer, stage 4 inflammatory breast cancer, a rare and aggressive cancer. On top of lupus, which he's battled for 30 years, it seemed like a death sentence. Days before I flew to Arizona, I had flown home to North Carolina to see her. My mom's diagnosis weighed on me heavily as we produced this show. I mostly kept it quiet, but there were times I wanted to share it with certain people, like the baggage kids, so they could see that, truly, at this moment, I could, in some way at least, empathize with their loss, that I was human too, and not just some parasitic reporter. As of this recording, my mom has undergone chemo, surgery, and physical therapy. Up next, radiation. Also as of this recording, we as a world are in the middle of a devastating pandemic, COVID-19, or the novel coronavirus. I always plan to discuss loss, or looming loss, or the possibility of looming loss, but I never imagined it would be under these circumstances. What I want to say most is that I've felt loss, or the threat of it nearly the entire time we've produced this show. It's been difficult to work, hard to focus. But given the circumstances, given our current global situation, I want to say this. We are all going through collective trauma right now. It hurts. Some of us have lost loved ones. Some of us are terrified of losing loved ones. I just want you to know that I feel what you feel, that fear. But we're in this together, And for anyone out there who's scared, who's afraid, who's depressed, who's anxious, I get it. This is horrible, but we will get through it. Be there for each other, love each other. We'll get through this. In Arizona, Paul and I still had a very long list of people to find doors to knock on, and places to visit. We were about to drive to Tucson, but before we left Phoenix, we made one final stop. I'm standing in the parking lot of the Clarendon Hotel. Uh, It's a hotel in Phoenix, Arizona. And on this very spot, on June 2nd, 1976, Don Bowles, who was an investigative reporter who looked into the mafia and uh, corruption around the state of Arizona, was killed by a car bomb. He said a few things before he died. John Adamson, m and Mafia. And with those clues, investigators found a man named John Harvey Adamson, uh, who was convicted of putting a remote control bomb under Bowles' car. Uh, It's abnormal for a journalist to be killed in the United States. It's extremely abnormal for a journalist to be killed by a car bomb, Um, but car bombings happened. Uh, They happened in Arizona, they happened in Alaska in the 1970s. And, I mean, I've read about this killing for a long time, and it's weird to stand here because it's just an average parking lot in Phoenix, and a man was blown up here in the 70s. In old news footage of the Bulls bombing, you can see the exact spot where I stood, the exact spot in the parking lot of the Clarendon Hotel where Bulls was blown up. The Pavement is Soaked in Blood. The assassination of Bowles in 1976 enraged his colleagues. Journalists from around the nation descended on Arizona to continue his work, to show that, if you take out one of us, good luck, we'll dig deeper. These journalists launched a far-reaching investigation into crime and corruption that became known as the Arizona Project.
2: Good evening, a group of newspaper, radio, and television reporters charged today that the
3: state of Arizona is now the major corridor for narcotics into the United States, that the state has been invaded by organized crime, and that some of Arizona's major political figures, including Senator Barry Goldwater, have condoned organized crime's invasion of the state. The reporters took on their Arizona investigation to finish a job started by Don Bowles, a reporter for the Arizona Republic who was murdered nine months ago.
0: The investigative work was painstaking. For six months,
2: the team probed through public records, doing the slow, tedious, methodical work of the investigative journalist. What they found in records of land transactions and corporation documents and court documents would not have attracted the attention of most people. What they found were records of loans and canceled checks and requests to politicians for help on certain projects. The reporters conducted hundreds of interviews, and recorded many of them. They exchanged information with law enforcement agencies. They traced the genealogy of the mob families and located some of them in Arizona.
0: At this point, as the reporter speaks, the camera pans over several books, including Honor Thy Father, the bestseller on the Bonanno family, the same book that tied Jerry Paisley to the Bonanos. As the Arizona Project reporters dug deeper, they found pervasive rot.
2: They say in their reports that Arizona is now the major corridor for narcotics, that the state has been invaded by organized crime, that major political figures of the state have made an easy and profitable accommodation with the underworld. The major bank in Arizona, a large restaurant chain, the nation's foremost land swindler, corrupt law enforcement officials, all find places in their stories.
0: If you're curious at this point as to why I'm discussing Don Bowles and the Arizona Project at all, how they tie directly into the story of the missing congressman, let me explain. First, both Bowles and reporters for the Arizona Project dug into the two mob families Jerry Paisley worked for, the Bananos and the Licavolis, who were not just in Arizona for some son. Both families were active and wielded powerful influence in the state. Second. Bowles was killed by a remote controlled bomb in Arizona less than four years after the missing congressman disappeared. Less than four years after Jerry Paisley said he transported a bomb from Arizona to Alaska that was allegedly used to assassinate the missing congressman. Finally, I want to emphasize that it was a different time back then. Bombings were much more commonplace in the 60s and 70s, and they weren't just concentrated in big cities. They were scattered around the nation, In fact, only four months after Bowles was killed by a car bomb in Phoenix, a woman named Muriel File was killed by a car bomb in Anchorage. So here in 1976, in the span of four months, are two examples of bombings that killed people, one in Arizona and one in Alaska. Neither were directly tied to Paisley, but all this to say, the idea of a small plane being bombed in Alaska four years earlier is not as outlandish as it seems. After we left Phoenix, Paul and I drove to Tucson. I was quiet for most of the ride, staring out the window, eyeing the desert. I texted Steve Fowler a few times. He sent me his address and a code to get into his gated neighborhood. Remember, Steve is the son of Gene Fowler, one of six people Jerry Paisley named as having taken part in, or having knowledge of, the alleged bombing of the missing congressman's plane. So Paul and I didn't really know what to expect. We figured Steve would be pissed. Here we were digging into his dad. When we pulled up to Steve's house, we just sat there for a minute. There was no car in the driveway, no movement. Then, slowly, the front door swung open. But we couldn't see anyone. Just an open door leading into a darkened house. I got out of the car. Paul grabbed the recording equipment. We eyed each other like, this is creepy. And then, there was Steve. He smiled and welcomed us in. We sat at his kitchen table, he offered us water. He was
3: friendly, which surprised me and made me suspicious. My name is Steven Fowler. I am a native Tucsonan who spent about half of his life in Anchorage, Alaska. I'm from a very large family and most of them are now gone. My father came from a family of three girls and eight sons and my father is the only one that, that remains alive.
0: At this point, I knew that Gene Fowler, Steve's dad, was alive, but I didn't know where he was. Half of me thought, maybe, that he was standing in a room down the hall, pushed up against the door, listening to our conversation. Steve said that when he was a kid, his family split their time between Arizona and Alaska. Gene, his dad, worked construction and mining jobs, And found other ways to cash in on the Alaska oil boom, too.
3: There was a lot of opportunity to make a lot of money in a lot of different ways. And members of my family, one of the things they did was they got into uh, after-hours gambling. They would open a place with a couple of blackjack tables and a poker table. And they didn't sell alcohol or anything like that. But when people had their paycheck, they'd cash it. And now they wanted to have fun with it. So it was was, uh, a big a big period where nightlife was was huge. It was a tough time for law enforcement. There was a lot going on. There was a lot of crime. Cocaine was everywhere. Um, and it all stems back to the fact that there was a lot of money. The free flow of money brought in the criminal element, the drugs, the prostitution, the illegal gambling, and there was always somebody there to take advantage of the guy that just cast his paycheck. And probably from the time I was 15 on, I started learning very quickly that there are two sides to Anchorage. And the one side I never really saw, but as a teenager I learned there was a very seamy side to Anchorage. There were lots of bars that had a lot of crime involved with, with those bars. There were shootings, there, were, uh, there was prostitution, there were, people were being beat. I, I remember stories about bars being firebombed. Switching gears,
0: I asked Steve what he knew about this story, what he remembered of the plane's disappearance, which names he recognized, etc. So I'm gonna throw names at you and you tell me what you know of these people. Jerry Paisley.
3: Jerry Paisley. Uh, Jerry Paisley was a bar operator that, as I understand it, had ties to organized crime. Um, Jerry Paisley, I believe he went to prison in Florence, Arizona uh, for more than a life term for killing someone in Tucson. I also believe I heard many years ago that while he was in prison he started confessing to taking six, seven, or eight lives uh, up in Alaska. And I think some of them were allegedly through bombings um, back when he was in Alaska. When Steve said
0: this, it blew me away. Before our interview, I had, of course, been honest with him about who I was, and in general terms, what I was investigating. But with every source who might have important primary information, I'm also extremely careful not to taint their memory, so I hadn't gone into too much detail. I had not, for example, discussed the specifics of Paisley's claims, or even told Steve Paisley's name ahead of our interview. So it really surprised me that not only was Steve familiar with Paisley, but he also knew, to some degree, what Paisley said in 1994 and 95. I asked him where he heard it, the details of Paisley's claims. Steve said he probably picked it up from the Anchorage Daily News but he definitely didn't. The Daily News never published Paisley's allegations. Trust me. So, Jerry Paisley, originally from Detroit, lived in Tucson, was also in Alaska. Did your father and your uncle Larry, did they know Paisley in Tucson or just in Anchorage?
3: I believe they, they knew him in Tucson. My uncle had uh, a, a closer relationship with him, and I, and. And when I say that, I don't mean to say that they were close. They knew each other better than my father and Paisley. And in Alaska, probably because my brother, my, my uncle was a barfly, dad's brother, uh, he Larry probably knew Jerry a lot better than my father.
0: Larry Fowler, Steve's uncle, was, again, the man Jerry Paisley said he, Gene Fowler, and Danny Zivinich met up with on the day Paisley allegedly transported a bomb to Alaska. Larry is the guy who was shot to death in Anchorage in 1995, only 27 days after Paisley did a follow-up interview with an investigator.
3: Steve was close to Larry. You know, Larry was, was one of the, the biggest-hearted guys I've ever met. Uh, he was a very nice man. He wasn't well-educated, uh, but he read a lot when he got older. And so he was a good guy, um, I think he was like that junkyard dog that didn't have any teeth. He liked to be tough and gruff and tell people, I know Jerry Paisley and I know this guy and I know that you know that guy. Um, and he acted like he was tough. He, he walked with a gruff demeanor. So let, let me uh, kind of underscore one word that I always associate with him. He acted tough, but he was a coward.
0: The circumstances surrounding Larry's death, do you find them suspicious at this point?
3: I'm not a conspiracy theorist. Um, I don't even know if I would say suspicious, but there were a lot of unanswered questions.
0: I asked Steve to tell me more about his dad. He told me that one of the defining
3: moments of his dad's life occurred in 1970. My father in 1970, in June, was in a ditch in, uh, in Alaska, a very deep ditch, with clay walls and water in the bottom And the ditch caved in and broke 26 bones in, in my father's back, lower ribs, pelvis, legs, feet, and uh, he wasn't supposed to make it through the night. He was in traction in the hospital, and 30 days later, he walked out. And I asked him once, I said, why did you have so much determination? He said, because my family had $40 to our name, when I went in the hospital, we were living in a rental, and if something would have happened to me, I would have left nothing for my family. Gene Fowler was all about family,
0: Steve said. Are you close to your dad? Yes, I am. Close, and you were close to your Uncle Larry, too? Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, cut from totally different cloth than them. I have a different, uh, uh, different ethical standard. I, I have a different kind of character than them. I love them dearly. Um, They're good guys, but uh, we're different.
0: And I had tried to interview your dad. Are you comfortable sharing why that's not possible? Three years
3: ago, dad had a major stroke. He's had a number of minor strokes since. And then about a year, year and a half ago, he had a major heart attack. He's very hard to understand. In fact, just as you were pulling up uh, to meet with me today... Dad had been trying to tell me something over and over, and I didn't understand it. So I had him write it down on a piece of paper and have my mother call me and read to me what he wrote. And even, he even has trouble with that. So um, that's why he's not part of this, this podcast. Do they live nearby here? Uh, they live uh, seven miles away.
0: So there we go. Of the six people Jerry Paisley named, three were dead, two wouldn't speak with me, and the last one was alive, but unable to communicate. I circled back to Paisley's allegations, about which Steve seemed to know a little, but not a lot. But that little, the fact that Steve somehow knew about them at all, still intrigued me. You mentioned uh, that Paisley was speaking with law enforcement or investigative reporters. or To my knowledge, that was never in the papers. Do you remember who told you that? No, I don't.
3: Uh, you know, there it's kind of a, a network of, of scuttlebutt that always somehow ended up getting t- to my uncle and others. And I think before my uncle passed away, he had told me that uh, he had heard that Jerry was talking to some officials or somebody about um, some missing bodies in Alaska, some unsolved crimes. And my uncle had been in Tucson just days before his death. I don't know if that played a role in, in how he got that scuttle, but uh, that's how I think I heard about it.
0: Are you aware that Jerry mentioned your uncle and your father to law enforcement?
3: I don't know that.
0: So Jerry had a very fascinating tale. Number one, there were many unsolved killings, and he copped to at least five, I think six killings. One of the other things that Jerry said was that in 1972, in the summer of 72, that he was asked by an associate of the Bonanno family to transport a package, a briefcase to Alaska and that he did. And that when he got to Alaska, there was a man named Danny and your father met him at the airport. My father? Yes. Oh, Wow. <laughs> Did you did you not
3: know that? No, no. This is the only thing I know about anything to do with uh, with 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 what I think you're talking about is Jerry was telling people there's a real big deal about to go down, and that was right about the time that the that the baggage plane went down. But uh, no, this you're blowing me away with this.
0: I went on to read Steve documents detailing Paisley's allegations that Gene Fowler and Danny Zivanich picked up Paisley at the Anchorage airport in 1972, when Paisley allegedly transported a bomb from Arizona to Alaska, and that the three men later met up with Larry Fowler.
3: Wow. Um... I can respond to what you read by saying a couple of things. I know my father, and I can't say he didn't take Jerry Paisley to uh, an airport, or pick Jerry Paisley up at an airport, my father would never, ever knowingly do anything that would bring harm to anyone. That's, that's just my father, um, neither would my uncle. Um, my uncle was just a coward.
0: If they, had, if they had had knowledge of it, do you think that they would have said something to someone?
3: Now that I'm not sure of. Um, I know dad was afraid of how bad people hurt good people. And Dad has never, never thought it was wise um, to run to the police and tell police things because it, it could jeopardize uh, your own safety. Um,
0: the allegation here is that your father and your Uncle Larry, not that they were directly involved in any kind of bombing. The allegation is it was a different man, but that your father just picked him up at the airport and that Paisley met with your father and your uncle on that trip?
3: Well, if, if, um, if I were to hear that again, of course, my mind was racing as you were reading this to me. Um, in so many ways, it's unfathomable that my, my father could ever be involved in anything. Steve said that, like me, he was
0: frustrated. Now he had a million questions for his dad, and his dad couldn't answer them. Why I was so interested to talk with your father is because there's so few people who actually, and I I know that I can't, but there are so few people related to this, number one, who are still alive. Number two, who could theoretically provide any insight about the possibility of the plane being bombed. It's would Would anybody believe anything Jerry Paisley said if it were not for the fact that he married the widow of the missing congressman and then later made these claims does not mean he was telling the truth, but it's like it becomes it's much harder than if he was just an average guy on the street who you wouldn't listen to him for two seconds again, it does not mean everything he said was true, sure and but this was this was enough that. Dateline seriously investigated it. This PI was an Army intelligence guy before he was a PI. Uh, There were very seasoned investigators who were significantly suspicious. Everybody that I've talked to who is reputable, who most of them, quote, call bullshit for a living, they have not and won't call bullshit and it's not because they have any affi- affinity for paisley it's because like you said if you hear this this crazy tale from Jerry Paisley and you know i can find business records that show this or certain things can be corroborated well maybe he was telling the truth maybe he was lying maybe he told partial truths it's it's so hard to get To the truth here, it's almost impossible at this point. So that's why I was so excited to speak to your dad, not because I think your dad had any deep involvement in this, but because Paisley named your father and your uncle as people who might have had knowledge of this. And there are so few of those people left. But hearing me say that Jerry Paisley claimed that your father picked him up at the airport in Anchorage when Paisley brought a package to Anchorage from Tucson on behalf of the Bananos. Do you think that's possible?
3: I think it's possible Dad picked him up at an airport. I think it's it's no different than if um, a random cab driver picked someone up at the airport that had just cut his wife's head off. Um, in a different state, and pick, that doesn't mean the guy knew anything about it or had any association with it. And I think my father is guilty by association in that in that narrative there, uh, but that doesn't mean for a moment that I think the Dad had any knowledge of anything about anything like that, because that's not my father. Um, wow, I mean, it just blows me away.
0: What convinces you that there's no chance that he had any knowledge?
3: That doesn't believe in hurting people. He doesn't like it when people hurt each other. Um, he's just, he abhors people getting hurt. Um, he values life. He's, um, he's just, he's not hes not that person uh, that that suggests that he is. And that's all that does is suggest. It doesn't say he had any knowledge of it. I mean, I could believe all of that stuff, that even dad took him to the, to the airport, unknowingly, picking a guy up that might have had a bomb. But not knowing, but my father would never knowingly pick somebody up that had a bomb. I can tell you that
0: did Jerry Paisley, to your knowledge, have any problems or any beef with your dad and Larry to the point that it would prompt him to say something
3: not that I'm aware of, but you know, as you were reading that a while ago the the thought did cross my mind. I mean, why would a man say something like that? What's interesting to me about
0: Paisley's claims beyond the fact that certain parts of it are provable, again, does not mean all of it's provable or true. Paisley very well could have been lying about all of it or part of it. And that's something that I want to be very clear about. I'm not here to do some bullshit conspiracy thing. I want to find the truth. It's really hard. But what Paisley said is just, I mean, you understand why Putting your father aside, just focusing on Jerry Paisley, you understand why it just seems suspicious, even to Pulitzer winning reporter, to a Dateline producer, to law enforcement, that this mob guy, low level, medium level, whatever, but had proven affiliation with the Bonanos and Licavolis, would marry the widow of a missing congressman less than
3: seventeen months later. You can't write this stuff. You can't <laughs> it's crazy. Um, but a lot of that happened. We know a lot of that happened. The marriages happened, the plane went down. Uh we just don't know a lot of the whys and what really happened.
0: Well I think I think it, you know, we go from what was the most logical explanation. The most logical explanation is the plane went down in bad weather. And I think however, people just took that for granted. And maybe when there should have been more follow-up on other ends, there wasn't. I think people were just kind of happy to close the book on this. What I said to Steve is what I believe. I'm not looking to force a story here. I just want to find the truth. But other than Chris Scholl, the Dateline producer, nobody really looked into Paisley's claims. And that lack of follow-up is what pisses me off. Do you know if your father or uncle were ever contacted by any members of law enforcement or the FBI to discuss Jerry Paisley's claims?
3: No. 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 The only only knowledge that I have about Dad being contacted by law enforcement was right after the the first hijacking. What was the guy's name? Uh, D.B. Cooper. Wait, what? So D.B. Cooper supposedly hijacked a plane, I think, that flew out of Portland or Seattle or somewhere. Dad had a friend in Alaska that loved to jump out of airplanes. This guy jumped out of airplanes all the time, and he would do it drunk, he would do it sober. He said, I don't care if I have the worst parachute, I'm comfortable. In fact, if you take the parachute off, I think I could hit the ground and still survive if I planned it right. And Dad thought he was nuts. And shortly after that hijacking, the, the FBI came to Alaska and they said, you know, we understand you have association with one of these guys that are on our suspect list. And that's the only time that... Um, I know of that dad ever was involved in any kind of investigation like that. And it was just that he knew a guy that jumped out of airplanes. And,
0: and I'm assuming that guy
3: was not D.B. Cooper? Uh, Dad's to this day, thinks it was D.B. Cooper. Yeah. He never saw the guy again or anything. He didn't think he was capable of something like that. But that guy disappeared after, after the hijacking, and, and nothing's ever come of it.
0: What was this guy's name?
3: Ah, boy. You know, Dad told me his first name when he would tell the stories when I was young, but I don't remember. That was back in the 60s.
0: I know, I know. A wild turn. Just when you thought the show had it all, here comes D.B. Cooper. Anyway, back to Paisley. Okay, so I interviewed the three men who, the three investigators who talked to Jerry Paisley in 1994. It was Mike Grimes, Tom Davis, who was an Arizona investigator, and uh, Dave Tullis, who was an Alaska state trooper. And I was amazed they all agreed to speak on the record. It's it's not common. The thing that these guys said was they were very disappointed in the lack of a follow-up by the FBI, that if Paisley's claims were true, that was a very serious allegation. They turned it over to the FBI. The FBI did investigate them, but it seems that it was a lackluster investigation to say the least. Um, It just seems like the going thing here is Jerry Paisley is a criminal. There's no reason to believe him. And I understand why people would say that. But it also just seems like a kind of convenient, lazy excuse to not follow-up on information. I have no sympathy for Jerry Paisley in that sense. I mean, I don't know what he went through to make him the way that he was, but he killed people, he hurt people, he used people. And, you know, the idea that these claims could be part of that legacy of hurting people is painful to the people, obviously, I mean, it bothers me.
3: Well, his was a life of crime. And in a life of crime, everything you do involves deceit. And so I'm sure he was a very accomplished liar. Was he lying about this? I don't know. I've done a lot of embezzlement work and chased down embezzlers, and you take all everything in, and you chase it, every thread to its logical conclusion. And so when people get lazy and they close the books on allegations made by a guy like Paisley, I think, I think that's a disservice to everybody involved. And when I say everybody involved, on the day that that plane went down, however it went down, into the side of a mountain, blew up, went into the water, iced up, who knows? When that plane went down, it was like throwing a stone in the middle of a calm lake, those ripples are still going out and impacting people. And so it's, it's, it's important to the integrity of the, of the investigation and to the lives that are impacted by those ripples that have continued to expand over almost 50 years now. It's only fair you follow every lead to its logical conclusion. You don't close the book just because it's inconvenient or you've got three more cases on your desk. Uh, But unfortunately, that's what happens.
0: Does it bother you that I'm still digging into this 50 years later?
3: No, because uh, like I said earlier in the interview, uh, I don't believe there's necessarily anything here worthy of a conspiracy theory, but there are unanswered questions. And I think wherever there are unanswered questions... It makes sense to pursue it. So I actually commend you for trying to get to the bottom of this. And at the same time, I recognize, and it's hard as hard as you're trying to to mitigate the pain it might bring to people, uh, people like myself hearing about my father's name at the airport, or if you sit down with Mark, Mark Baggage, Nick Baggage, Tom Baggage, you sit down with them, it's going to bring up pain to them. It's going to bring pain to them at some level. Um, But at the same time, um, no pain, no gain. And in order to get to the answers, you've got to do what you're doing. Uh, Because law enforcement isn't doing it anymore. The fact that this didn't go public with what Jerry claimed to have have said, it doesn't sound like it triggered an FBI investigation or anything. It did.
0: It did trigger one, but it was brief.
3: Yeah. That tells me that uh, you're doing the right thing. I commend you. So I'm I'm not angry at you at all.
0: I legitimately, though, I, I hate confrontation. I don't like showing up at people's houses. You know, why am I doing this? I mean, it's a fascinating story. There are unanswered questions. There are a lot of questions nobody ever asked. And I'm not really the type of person to just give up. But this is it for me. So whatever I learn here, it's it's somebody else can take up the mantle or more likely we're just never going to know the full truth. There are just, again, you know, a few odd things here or there, but there are just so many things and there are a lot of powerful people in media and politics in Alaska that are aware of some or all of this that never said anything.
3: So... Is your hope that this effort on your part, whether you take it much further or not, will genu- will generate sufficient interest by one or more people to pick up the baton, the torch, and run with it?
0: I would hope so, yes. What I would really like to see, and I think what would have been fair to your dad, is if people are innocent, then... Do a proper damn investigation and clear them. Because if what Jerry Paisley said is not true, then there's a lost opportunity that a better investigation wasn't undertaken in the mid-1990s, 25 years ago, to clear people's names or to prove people guilty. So this is how September 17th, 2019 ended. At the end of this very long day, 47 years after the Congressman's plane vanished, and 25 years after Jerry Paisley said it may have been bombed, I found myself only seven miles away from Gene Fowler, one of the key players in Paisley's story. One of two men Paisley said picked him up at the Anchorage airport when he allegedly transported a bomb from Arizona to Alaska. It stung to be so close to possible answers and to know that if I had shown up three years earlier, I could have interviewed Gene. Now that was impossible. Stricken by strokes and a heart attack, Gene couldn't speak. Reporting this story during the past nine years, as people have fallen ill and died, I've watched evidence evaporate, knowledge disappear, but not all is lost. There are still answers to be had. Other people have important information. Many of these people are in two old photos, one color, one black and white. These are the photos of Paisley and Peggy Begich's wedding, the originals, that investigator Tom Davis gave me straight out of his organized crime Bible. These are the red dot photos. Next time on Missing in Alaska. How long after uh, you arrived in prison did you meet Jerry Paisley?
3: I met him in late 2004, I think.
0: This week, one task. Using primary sources, like newspaper archives, research what mob boss Joe Bonanno was up to between July 1972 and November 1972. I've already done this, but it would be nice to have your help. See if I missed anything. See what you find. And if anything jumps out, feel free to contact us. You can reach us by phone at one eight three mia tips That's one 642 8477 Again, one 642 8477 Or you can reach us via email at tips at iheartmedia.com. That's tips, T-I-P-S, at iheartmedia.com. An important note, none of the people Jerry Paisley claimed took part in or had knowledge of the alleged bombing, Joe Bonanno, Joia Tarola, Danny Zivinich, Gene Fowler, Larry Fowler, or Peggy Begich, were ever charged with or convicted of crimes tied to any of Paisley's allegations. Peggy Begich and Danny Zivinich declined multiple requests for an on-the-record interview. Gene Fowler was unavailable for an interview. Joe Bonanno, Joia Tarola, and Larry Fowler are dead. Louis Marconi, the ex-cop who was friends with Paisley, also was never charged with or convicted of any crime tied to any of Paisley's allegations. Marconi declined multiple requests to do a recorded interview. Ben Bolin is our executive producer. Paul Deccant is our supervising producer. Chris Brown is our assistant producer. Seth Nicholas Johnson is our producer. Sam Teagarden is our research assistant. And I'm your host and executive producer, John Walczak. You can find me on Twitter at at JohnWalczak, J-O-N-W-A-L-C-Z-A-K. Footage for this episode was provided by NBC. Special thanks to Steve Fowler. Among other things, Steve is an author. He didn't ask me to plug his book, but I will anyway. It's called Spy Games, Inside the Murky World of Corporate Espionage. You can find it on Amazon. Missing in Alaska is a co-production of iHeartMedia and Greenfort Media.